Once again, we're in the book of Mark, chapter 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses. Then I'd like to ask uh, Ely, would you be willing to pray for the Lord's blessing upon the, His holy word? Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." Let us pray. Mr. Lord, Father, bless the word, reading the words in our hearts. Help us to hear the preacher. Open our hearts to you, your word and to understanding the word. This Holy Father, more than anything, draws to yourself. Help us to know that you are God and there is no other. Help us to see the true wisdom in these words. If you were going to break 400 years of silence, how would you do it? Moses predicted the predicament that Israel found itself in, and predicament is not a strong enough word. It was a desperation, a desolation for them. He told them uh, in Deuteronomy, if we were to look at, for example, chapters 28, 29, we would see that he warned them again and again that they would be a byword. They would be a joke to the nations around them. They would be taunted and they would be sent into exile for disobedience. He says at one point, you shall be the tail instead of the head. Instead of being a leading nation, you would find yourself at the tail end. Your fortunes will be different because of your disobedience. And in 722 BC, 10 tribes of Israel were carried off to Assyria. And then in the providence of our Lord, we read, uh, heard it today, read by our brother Neil. In chapter 52 of Isaiah, the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah taken into captivity by the Babylonian kingdom in 586 B.C. In there, you can't help but see verse after verse. The dismantling of not only the temple, bronze piece by bronze piece, silver piece by silver piece, carted off to Babylon, but the destruction or the taking apart of the nation of Israel, Judah, the temple, and Jerusalem destroyed. 
But as Jeremiah also predicted, Judah's captivity would last for 70 years, and then the temple would be rebuilt. It took 20 years for Zerubbabel to do that, from 736 to 516 BC, as far as I understand the reckoning, but finished rebuilding the temple. And Daniel promised that Jerusalem itself would be rebuilt by 445 BC under the leadership that we see in the scriptures of Nehemiah. Over and over and over again, Israel was reminded that God stood by his word. That what he spoke through Moses and through the prophets would come to pass. And in approximately 433 BC, God spoke through another prophet, a man by the name of Malachi, whose very name means my messenger. He spoke to the priests of Israel, saying, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And in chapter 4 of that message, we read the prophet saying, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. John Calvin wrote, In order to inflame the minds of his people with a stronger desire of the promised salvation, the Lord had determined to leave them for a time without new prophecies. This was the end of prophecy for approximately 400 years. 400 years of silence where they were waiting for God to speak again. Would God keep his word again that he would indeed send a messenger before his face? Yes. <laughs> The answer is emphatically yes. And the silence was broken through an angel named Gabriel when he said to an obscure little priest in a little city in Judea, he said, fear not. Fear not, Zacharias, for God has answered your prayer. Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were chosen to be the bearers of the messenger who was to come. The scriptures tell us in Luke chapter 1 that they were a, a righteous couple, that they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They were righteous. They were blameless but they were also childless. And it seems to, to me that Zacharias and Elizabeth had decided that their love for one another, their love for the Lord would be enough. And that perhaps their prayers for a child had been abandoned some years prior. It says that Elizabeth was barren and advanced in years. And yet the Lord answered their prayer when Gabriel spoke to Zacharias 
in a very awkward situation. He was chosen by Lot to be the one that day to go into the Holy of Holies by himself to perform the sacrifices. And all the people were standing outside the temple as he went in, and they could not understand what's taking him so long. Zacharias was troubled, the scripture says, and fear gripped him, but the angel said, fear not. This is what the Lord is going to do, that he would have a son. And he says, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. The word that God spoke through his messenger, Malachi, was now being proclaimed first to one man and then to his wife, Elizabeth. And then soon God would shatter the silence by a man by, that we know by the name of John the Baptist. And the name John, as we see in the scriptures, was a surprise and a disappointment to all of Zacharias and Elizabeth's relatives. You've got to be kidding. John is not a name that is familiar in your family. He certainly is going to be Zacharias Jr., do you not know that? And both Elizabeth and then when Zacharias was able to speak after five months of the Lord not allowing him to speak, said, yes, his name will be John, Jehovah's gracious gift. When God chose to speak, he chose to speak through a man named John as his gift, showing his grace. He was chosen, as we've just read from Luke, to be a Nazarite, a separated one, one who would be holy to the Lord all his days. And what was his job? What was the description that was given to Zacharias that his son would take to the world? He would come before God in spirit and power of Elijah. Well, that's Malachi 4. Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And what would he do? Turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. We sometimes sing that song, I think, that became popular in the 70s, was it not, with the musical Godspell? prepare ye the way of the Lord. And we, I think, think of that as an, an idea of that, that there would be the highway and there would be the, the, the way to go. And, and this is the way of the Lord. But what is being prepared here? What is the assignment of John was to prepare the hearts of the people, prepare them to meet the Lord, prepare them to welcome their God. His job description was to arouse attention, to, to stir excitement, to wake up a slumbering nation of Israel 
to the Lord their God returning, coming in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the forerunner. He was to be a herald. He was a pioneer. He was going to blaze that trail. He was, as you understand from the description that we read of him in Mark, he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt. He was a mountain man. He ate locusts and he ate wild honey. He ate the things that were part of his <coughs> habitation. And he was the Elijah who was to come. I think many in our day, and probably in that day, after he began to speak, and after he was so persistent in his message, would label John a hater. You remember the words when in the scripture and the gospels when they talk about John, prepare the way of the Lord, repent for the forgiveness of sins. And people would come. We see here the people came. They came in droves from all Judea and all the people of Jerusalem coming out to the wilderness to see him. And what was his phrase that he commonly greeted them with? You brood of vipers. Who taught you of the wrath of God to come? John was a man who understood sin. He lived in the wilderness, I believe, because of his sorrow over the sin, not only his own sin, but the sin of man. He had this sense of what sin was. He had a conscience that was tuned to what wickedness was. I received a number of books for Christmas, and I do appreciate them all. And I'm trying to get through them and enjoy them in the little time that I have to read. But one of the books I received was uh, authored by a man named Alexander White, and he's doing a, a biography, he did a biography 100 years ago, I think, of people of the Bible, of the Old and New Testament. And Alexander White says of John, he says, John was the man of sorrows until the true man of sorrows himself should come. John lived in the wilderness his whole life. Even from the womb, we know that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and yet his mission was, was his life. He, he lived in a wilderness, and again, I, I think the idea that he only lived in the desert is, is wrong. Uh, some of the books that I read, well, he was in the desert. Yes, he was in the deserts near the Dead Sea, and they are dead. And there is desert land. He probably roamed through where Sodom and Gomorrah were utterly destroyed. But there was also mountainous country. There was also impenetrable forests. This man was a mountain man, but he roamed in these wilderness areas because he was dealing with the mission that he would have before the Lord and before the people. John was a man of sorrows, but John was also like Elijah. And it's kind of puzzling to me when I read of Elijah and read of John, but they, I think they were very much alike. We, we read of Elijah in 1 Kings, how he stood one day before 450 priests of Baal and 400 
priests of Asherah, and they were going to prove that their God could do something. So he asked them to you know, form a pit and call down fire on it and consume this thing. And Elijah stood before them tall and strong and full of faith. And he says, Lord, when it came his turn, when they failed, he says, Lord, let it be known that thou art God in Israel. This is the message that John was speaking of. Let it be known. Let it be known that you are coming. Again, Alexander White says of John, he says, Zacharias' son would have made a better son of thunder than both of the sons of Zebedee taken together. He was a son of thunder. He spoke, and I, we can't hear the volume of his voice, but a mountain man probably has a deep, strong, echoing voice. And then we see, like Elijah, we turn the page from 1 Kings 18, I think it is, you turn it over to 1 Kings 19, and what is Elijah doing? He's hiding in a cave, <laughs> and he's afraid to come out. And God says, Elijah? What are you doing? And finally, when he comes out, he says, I alone am left. They seek my life. He was puzzling over what is going on. We puzzle over his humanity. And yet we see John later in the Gospels when he's in prison and his disciples come to him he says, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the expected one? Or shall we look for another? There is this humanity in John, and yet there he is a man full of energy, full of faith, full of ministry. His purpose, his job description, to stir up the people, to wake them up, to prepare them to know the Lord. And what does he declare? What is his message? Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John's time in the wilderness, I don't think is just, there's a crazy man living out in the woods. And it's not a time, as some seem to think, that John just needed solitude. No, it, it was a place of ruin. It was a place of desolation and despair. The, the desert is not a comforting place by day or by night. And I think we have a metaphor here of, of what the idea was. In fact, we, we read that very clearly. And some of you who, who play, as we do, Throughout the Christmas season, we, we crank up to high volume, Handel's Messiah, and we listen to the great baritone voice singing, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John's mission was to remove the obstacles to seeing Christ. 
He was to make the valleys raised up. And he was to make the hills and mountains low so they could see clearly the coming of Christ. It wasn't for solitude. It was for understanding what his mission was. Because in the passage that I just read from Isaiah chapter 40, that chapter begins with these words. Not words of despair, not words of, yeah, it's going to keep happening and this is your lot. What does God say through Isaiah? Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says God. And he gives a voice calling in the wilderness. Their cities were demolished. The sacrifices had been demolished. The people had been led captives. That's desolation and desperation. But John was to remove the obstacles, to make them ready. Or if I read it, translated, I believe it would be, make ready for the Lord a prepared people. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared to welcome him to see him. He was there to remove sin that would obstruct the coming of the kingdom of God. He was there to make a way for grace. And John's doctrine is very clear as his declaration was clear. It says he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness in, I think, in the Greek translation would be, in this case, remission. Remission does include forgiveness of sins, but there is a second component, I believe, to this word in the Greek. It's a putting away or a canceling of the punishment. This indeed is comfort. Comfort ye my people with these words. The grace of the Lord is come. Paul would probably describe it in, as in Romans 6, a newness of life. Or later in Ephesians, a blessing. Uh, you would, are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. These are things that, that John was making the people ready to receive. And notice that he commands them, it, it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But do not be confused. Men are commanded to repent but not so that they induce God to be gracious to them. As John Calvin wrote, the foundation of repentance is the mercy of God. It's all of God. Even the ability, even the desire, even the will to repent is the mercy of God by which he restores the lost sinner. And John points to the aid and the help of the helper, the paraclete who would come. He says that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit, that there, he was preparing the hearts to understand and to hear and to understand that there would be an inward baptizing, a spiritual baptizing of the grace of the Lord Jesus. As we said last week, the gospel includes not only that Jesus has come in the flesh and the good news that he comes for his people, but the gospel includes you shall be born again. He showed the need of repentance and the need to be born again. 
So these words are a clear declaration. His doctrine is clear, but what is his focus? Couldn't help but thinking about the line, and I can't remember it exactly because it's been more than 10 minutes. <laughs> but one of the lines that we sang to this morning is, I lay in the dust the glory dead. And that is what John did. Look what's happening. The people are coming from all over Judea and Jerusalem. And they're, they're, they're coming and the crowds are coming to the river, to the, wherever he was to find water and to be baptized. The people are coming. But what does John say? <laughs> Not me. After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. John knew that some would try to give him the honor that was due alone to Jesus Christ, and he would have none of it. From the very beginning, it's almost like he anticipated what would happen, and he says, no, we're going to cut this in the, in the bud. We're going to nip this in the bud. No. There is one who comes after me. I am the messenger. I am the forerunner. I am the herald. But one who will come after me is mightier than I. Jesus is a far superior rank to me. And his power and his authority are greater than mine. And John knows that he must bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. John is faithful in his ministry. But what was his ministry? Was to put Christ before the people. He was like that spotlight that J.I. Packer calls about. When the spotlight is well done, you don't see the spotlight. When you look at the building in all of its glory and all of its splendor, you don't see the light. You see the building, and that is what John was doing. One who comes after me is mightier than I. He is worthy of worship. John magnified the glory of Christ by comparing himself as a servant. He, he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. To stoop down in the dirt and untie his sandal and wash his feet. In John chapter 3, we read how John the Baptist was contending with those who were trying to understand his ministry, making fun. He said, it's true that you have said, I am not the, that I have said of myself, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, the master, he says, deserves all of the honor and the servant deserves none. And we read at the end of that section as he speaks to them, he tells them of all these things. I can rejoice. The, the, the bridegroom is the one who has the bride. That's not me. But I'm a friend of the bridegroom, and I can rejoice that he comes to his bride. I can rejoice and have great joy in what he has done and what he is doing and who he is. But I know my ministry. I know that I can't take the honor that is due him. I can't take any credit. And what does he say? He must increase. I must decrease. Christ must increase, not only in the world, not only in his ministry, not only in the things that he's going to say, but in your hearts and in my heart. I must decrease. He must increase. 
John did the work that he was destined to do even from the room to prepare the way for Christ. That's the way he lived every day. It was almost as if he could look at the disciples that Jesus was gathering around himself and say, you know, I know that I'm not going to be here when you go to Mount Olivet. I know that I'm not going to be here when you go to Calvary. I know that I'm not going to be here on the day when you appear again. I know that I'm not going to be here at the day of Pentecost. But I know my mission, and that is to prepare hearts, to remove obstacles to the Lord Jesus Christ. And did John prepare the way? Well, it appears that he did. He was faithful to his ministry, and he was very popular. All the country of Judea was going out to him, but I hesitate because I can't help but asking the question, yes? Many people came out, but how many were saved? Many people came out, but how many came to Christ? How many were willing to worship in the crowd with an unbelieving heart? How many were willing to come and, oh, here's a popular speaker. Here's an oddity. Here's a man who wears camel skin and leather and eats locusts and wild honey. Let's go see him. This is the latest fad. But how many heard his words? How many had their own hearts prepared? Doing the popular thing, going with the popular crowd does not make a spiritual change. Years ago, Martha's uh, sister and her husband were worshiping in a, one of the mega churches in Boston. We attended the services there a couple of times, and I, I think the attendance announced in the, in the bulletin from the previous week was something like 9,500, 10,000 people, one, one church service. And I was talking to my, I don't know, my sister-in-law's husband, my brother-in-law-in-law or something. And I was asking him, okay, what's it like being in this church? And he says, well, he said, I've been an usher. They've asked me to be an usher on one of the top balconies. And I hand out the bulletins and I try to greet people. But what I notice is that a tick before the service begins, a number of people will come in and sit in the back, back, back row. And then a tick before the service ends, they'll sneak out from the back, back row so that nobody talks to them. Nobody can get to know them. They don't want to know anything. They want to just come and listen and then go. And he said, I wonder... I wonder, do they even know the Lord? I wonder if they even know another Christian by name. Do they really worship together in the Lord, or is it just because something is popular? He's, the man who preaches here is a popular speaker and author, and it's maybe something good to tell people I'm a member of that church. And it seems for a time we hear Jesus speaking of John in John chapter 5 that perhaps for some time people really did listen to John. But I think there's a phrase in here that tells us, well, maybe not. Jesus says, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. 
But the witness I have is greater than that of John. Jesus knew that John was the forerunner, but I think he was saying, for a while you were willing to rejoice in his light, but not any longer because the things that he speaks of and the one to whom he points is me. And you don't like that. You can't work with that. And in fact, I believe he was just echoing what we read in Malachi 3. When Malachi gives us that prophecy and says to the people, Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me the very next Verse, he asked this question, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. Who can stand the day of Christ's coming? Who can stand when he appears? One of the other books that I received, not for Christmas, but at Christmas time, was the source book that our brother and sister, uh, Tim Failer and Abigail Hartman, wrote and edited. And it's pamphlets of writings in the 1600s in Britain, speaking of all manner of things, but it's the Old English, and I'm trying to learn how to read it, and I'm trying to learn how to decipher Old English. And every time I wanted to ask this question, and I wanted to type it, this is how this question's come out. But in relation to what John is preaching, and the preparing the way, and removing the obstacles, and pointing to Christ, the question that I think John would have us ask, and that I would ask is, what think ye of Christ? What think ye of Christ? Have you felt your need of him? Have you repented of your sins and come to him by faith? Have you felt the urging of the Holy Spirit and the spotlight that goes on Christ? Have you seen it? And does it affect you? Do you see how he sheds light on Christ? For in him, as Paul says, is the newness of life. In him are all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. John came to prepare the way, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we see from Moses to Daniel to Jeremiah to Isaiah into Malachi, and then to John, they all, they all proclaim the glory of Christ. As Isaiah says in chapter 40, the glory of the Lord has been revealed. All flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us to meditate on these things, to understand these things, to respond to these things. For neither John nor Jesus would leave us to sit pat and sneak out and sneak in and just listen. But he calls for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I pray, Father, that you would call us 
by your mercy to repentance and to faith and to walk in that newness of life that we might see Jesus and we might glorify him in our lives. We ask that you would do it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction. And I'm going to read the prophecy of Zacharias, John's father. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Amen.